0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are working on getting Dr. Ellen McKnight on the line today. She is going to be talking about transparency in healthcare. She is a rheumatologist in Florida, and I'm super excited to have her on. She's a great speaker, so I'm super excited to have her on. As always, you can catch us on our midweek podcast. Usually uh, Thursdays, eight to nine a.m. We are doing it later in the day for to accommodate our guests today. And you can also catch us on Mondays every one to two p.m. Um, live on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacies YouTube site. Um, also within a couple days, we usually have them edited and on our YouTube site edited in their format and also on the podcast forum. So SoundCloud, iTunes, Google, your favorite podcast forums. So please subscribe to those, those forums, comment, let us know content you'd like to see. We really, we really enjoy it. Um, we are on our, what is it producer 90 something episode now? I don't know if we're at 100 yet, but we're super excited. We've been doing this for over a year now, and we just have wonderful guests, including Dr. Dr. Ellen McKnight. Um, so with that, I will um, turn it over to Dr. McKnight and she can introduce herself. Dr. McKnight, I, I basically did a quick introduction of you and a quick introduction of of you know our healthcare system and mm-hmm. you know, my book that I wrote um, called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. Mm-hmm. And You know, in that six step solution, doctors like yourself are part of the solution where you um, step outside of the system because the system is maybe not fixable. I I don't like saying that, but there might be some truth to it. So you step outside of the system and tell us how, you know, give us a little bit of history about yourself and tell us how you've stepped outside the system and and what you see as a future.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, Number one, I actually do agree with you that Uh, that the system is so complicated. And I always say needlessly so. I mean, I think uh, what the movement such as direct primary care uh, and what I'm doing, which is what I call fair cash pricing, uh, those and the free market uh, medical association, you may have interviewed uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Keith Smith from the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. All these three models to me really prove that it is needlessly complicated. We do not have to have it as complicated as it is. Because what happened is, and I believe this is when Medicare came into the system, which no one's advocating getting rid of Medicare, so let's just put that out there. But they set up Medicare in a way that I think was faulty in the sense that they took the doctor and the patient out of having a direct relationship, particularly when it came to uh, transactions financial. Now, you may think, well, yeah, well, Medicare is covering that. And so, of course, you know, uh, th- you're not going to have a transaction that uh, between the doctor and the patient. But I believe that in the in the office setting, now I realize for big, bigger expenses, such as surgeries and those types of things, you would need to maybe go through Medicare directly. But what I would have liked to have seen in the very beginning, now no one was thinking of these things then, would have been Medicare patients being given Uh, like funds for an account for which they would go and pay their smaller, so to speak, medical costs. Okay. So doctor's visits and actually things like labs and even certain imaging studies, because frankly, when a patient does pay directly, the prices stay low. What has happened now is that we see that the prices are sky high. They're not even, they're on another plane. They're They're in the stratosphere. And the reason that that is is because someone else is paying the bill. And what we also now have is this corporatization where big insurance and Medicare and all of these things have taken from the doctor and the patient that direct relationship. You see, when I have a patient in my office that needs something, I of course I want to be paid fairly for what I do. That's why I call it fair cash pricing. I'm not I'm not trying to gouge anyone. I want to be paid fairly for what I do. You know, I'm working and, and I and I want that. But I have a second, very equally important thing to me, which is that I want the patient to get what they need. Now, when you corporatize everything, that that particularly, that second one goes away. And you can take insulin as a perfect example, because what happens now is a person who needs insulin to live will sometimes go and get their insulin and they're told it's $550 and they leave without their insulin. And in a doctor's office, whatever we could do, I mean, you'd be doing cartwheels and all the rest in order to get your patient what you need. They've taken that away. It's become very um, businesslike. And and there are other reasons too. I'd like to go into why I think the doctor and the patient are not communicating as well as they as they did in the past.
0: Well, yeah, I'd love you to go into those details. And first of all, thank you for You know educating us and educating educating our viewers um you know it's doctors like you that are going to fix these problems because honestly it's going to take a grassroots grassroots effort the government's not going to fix it um you know and like you said people don't realize it but you know primary care and even specialists like yourself um Are very affordable. It's really, you guys, you know, doctors are not that expensive. I get it when there's some big surgeries or something like that. They can be expensive. Although, when you look at, you know, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma um, and other free market solutions, even mm-hmm. surgeries don't have to be that expensive. They're expensive in big healthcare facilities and entities and hospitals, partly mm-hmm. because of all the price gouging. So, in right. a free market, like you say, prices go down, but not only that, service goes up, period. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people that will argue that, oh, yeah, you know, um, these places that are doing surgeries for, you know, one-tenth the price of what a hospital is doing, the hospitals argue that their quality is, is, is not as good. I argue it's better. So can you want to you want to expand on that at all?
1: Yes, I would. Well, I, I, I agree with everything that you said. Now, I, I would like to give a, a little bit more about my background, which is that I, I grew up, my father uh my late father was an orthopedic surgeon, and I have an older brother who's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I'm a rheumatologist, obviously. I have a younger brother who's a, a, a urologist, married to a radiologist. I'm married to an ophthalmologist, and his father is thankfully still with us, retired uh, family practice internal medicine, and so is uh, in nephrology, and so is my sister-in-law, my, my brother's sister. So when when I talk about changes in medicine, I'm coming from my father's history and my father-in-law and how they practice, and it was so much more of a true doctor-patient relationship yep. back then. There was, prote- the doctor provided a lot of protection for the patient, that's being ripped out of our hands. And so for instance, I, I used this line on a patient today, because I said something, I was going to start a new medication on her, and and she said, and I said, well, you know, look, I got to put it through your insurance, and we're going to see what they say. and. She said, well, wait a minute, if that's the medicine you want me on, why am I not going to be getting that medicine? And I said, well, see, that's been, I said, there used to be something called the doctor's orders, right? And the word order was used purposefully and for a very specific reason. No one would have, no one would have ever dreamed of changing or denying what was written on the page. And the reason is, is because the doctor has always been the one who is thought to have developed the knowledge, skill and experience to be able to decide with the patient, this is a joint decision, what is right for the patient. Well, now, as I've said to my colleagues, they're now suggestions. Uh, they're not orders any longer, they're more or less suggestions. And, and they're promptly ignored the moment they're written. And so that's a huge problem in medicine. And I really think patients should, um, should start uh, growling, I use the term growl back, we all should be growling back, you know, we're like, they've been poking this bear, we need to get where we have a little bit of outrage by what is happening to us. And where we do say, this is the decision between the patient and the doctor. And, and and so some of those things, you know, should be honored. So what happened in my case was I decided that I did not want to conform with medicare regulations it had nothing to do with medicare payments to me in fact maybe i'm making a little bit less but my regulatory life so to speak is so much more minimized now that i have this what i call the happiness quotient is very high because what i do is i'm not in medicare medicare is the driver of all of the things that you as a patient don't like okay i'll give you an example when you go into your physician and you're in the exam room, and your physician is on the computer, and I'm looking at this camera, but they're not looking at you, right? They're on the computer, they're, they're looking to the side, you're over there saying, I'm here, um, do you, are you gonna talk to me at all? And what happens is the doctor is not doing, why are they not looking at you? Why are they no longer even doing any sort of a physical exam? Why are they rushing through the visit? And that's because Medicare is the driver, insurance companies follow, But Medicare puts these rules on doctors. And what they say is, if you don't use the electronic health record, if you don't enter in a bunch of data for us to mine, and trust me, this data is mostly irrelevant, and it is meaningless to your physician. And your physician, highly trained, highly skilled, with a lot of experience, is being forced to do this. And that's why many doctors are burned out. Well, I did not want- Ellen. Yes.
0: Can I, just to, sure. edu- just to expand on this, sure. um, maybe some of our listeners and viewers don't know, but they get asked some of the same basic questions, and sometimes they're pertinent at primary care offices, but sometimes they're not in specialist offices. So these these questions that are irrelevant, can you give us some examples of some ridiculous ones that you, as a rheumatologist, have to ask a patient every time if they're a Medicare patient? Give us some examples so patients know oh. why they're being asked these questions.
1: Right. So I will um, I will give you examples of questions, but I will also say because I am an out, opted-out doctor, I do not waste my time asking these questions. So Let me give you an example. If someone is a smoker, is, excuse me, has never smoked, and they are, I don't know, 65, 70, you're seeing them, you, you got to go over the whole do you smoke thing. Now, they've never been a smoker. They don't smoke now. That's a waste of time, and it's irrelevant. I've heard of things about... Uh, things for the 90-year-old who's still riding their bike, you know, and then you have to sort of counsel on things like uh, wearing a helmet. Now, that should be in a pediatrician's office because I do believe that we should be, right, we should, but if you're 90, right, and you can still get on your bike, and I would make the case that maybe a helmet might be a hindrance to you at 90, hearing a car, maybe, you know, the vision might be a little obstructed. So it's, it's that kind of nonsense, honestly. And then at the end of the day, doctors who are doing this have to bring work home, which is another thing I completely rejected. I have a home life that I cherish. And I think as we've gone through this pandemic, doctors need to be able to go home. They need to have time with their family and they don't need to have the electronic health record brought into the house. But that's what's happening to many of the doctors where they're doing a family doctor, it's been estimated does an hour and a half a night of this data entry uncompensated. Now, if you do an hour and a half a night, you know, by the end of the week, that's coming up to an eight hours, eight hours, you factor that in by an entire year, you're talking about four to six weeks. That's, that's just an absurdity. And so I rejected that on every level and then did some things to try to rectify that.
0: And I am sure you feel liberated because of that, correct? Uh, correct. Um, yeah. So
1: uh, doctors will say, you know, they're all, you know, well, you've heard the term physician burnout. Um, physician burnout is not because physicians are working hard. Uh, that's kind of in the DNA of doctors. We like to work hard. We get an interesting case that might even be something we have to stay up all night for, but it's because of what we do and what and what we get from that. Yeah, that's okay. But what's happening now is doctors are doing irrelevant things, means nothing to them does not advance patient care. And so they're doing these things and they're burning out and they're bringing work home and interfering with their family life. So I am not a burned out doctor because I took control of my practice. Now I do say, and I hope we get into this, that what I did in my own practice was that I uh, left the Medicare system behind, but I did not leave my Medicare patients behind. And I can go through how I did that and how I think it's very fair what I've done.
0: Absolutely. So let's go back a little bit before mm-hmm. we move forward. Um, I, you are just a wealth of knowledge, um, Dr. McKnight. Thank you for being on our show. Um, so I got to say, I got to put a little shout out to the the the, the um, family practice doctor that delivered me, Dr. Richard Bunch. He passed away just yesterday. He was 84 years old and up until like three years ago, he was still working. I mean, unbelievable. Loved what he did. He started practicing in the sixties and I want, mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit here, maybe, um, but since you have uh, so many family members in Mm -hmm. um, healthcare,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: I wanted to kind of compare what's going on now. I I had a little meeting with our staff yesterday at Mm -hmm. at the pharmacy and talked about this, but Dr. Munch told me when he started practicing in the 1960s that um, he had, they would do house calls and it was Mm -hmm. $3 for a house call,
1: $2
0: Mm -hmm. for a new patient in office and $1 for a follow-up. Unbelievable. Right. Now, when we look at that now, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess the average office fee at a big, at a big type clinic that accepts mm-hmm. Medicare and all the insurances is probably $300. I mean, is that, is that probably fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that really outprices a CPI with inflation. I mean, it just, it, mm-hmm. it it is, it is out of hand inflation. Remember, he was giving me these numbers before Medicare passed. Medicare passed in 1964. Johnson signed it right. into law in 1964. And that's when prices really went up um, for exactly. just what you've been saying. So right. another thing about EMR, Dr. Richard Bunch, he knew me well. In fact, when he saw, uh, when he met my wife, mm-hmm. you know, quite a few years ago. He said, hey, you know, he made a joke to her. He goes, hey, I delivered your husband. And so he knew me as a patient. He knew he delivered me. I have a twin brother. that Maybe I was a little more memorable, but I doubt it. He probably remembers all his patients like that. So, and he said that up until they required EMR, he would have patients for 30, 40 years. And Mm -hmm. their notes was on a five by seven note card. His patient, his patient history and stuff. Because he knew Mm -hmm. everybody, Right. Right, right. So anyway, can you can you kind of comment on that uh, you know having yeah. in-laws and and a father in medicine how it's changed because of, of some of these regulations?
1: Well, I would like to go to the first thing about Medicare coming in to in the 60s. If you go through the Medicare law, there is a, there are two things in the Medicare law. One is a prohibition against federal interference in the practice of medicine well we all know that that they, they interfere not only in the pra- in every aspect of the practice of medicine now the other is uh choice of the patient to choose uh, you know what they get who they see all that we also know that that's not true either right so what i like to say and the way i say it is medicare reneged not the doctors and so when i say i didn't leave my patients behind i mean i i decided to uh, to still see them but for this fair cash price but to, to get to the point What happened in Medicare is, Medicare came in, and I think they said, we're just gonna pay what you charge. Now, could some doctors have maybe overcharged? Maybe it's possible, but that's what started the, because I guess if Medicare's paying, maybe you're not gonna charge $3 for the offices, maybe you're gonna charge $6 for the offices, and maybe the next time, $9. I mean, I do think there was something, but it all just took off because the the patient wasn't involved to check it. Like again, Had I been seeing somebody for $3 and I don't care who's paying, I'd be like, well, wait a minute. I saw you just a year ago, it was $3. Why is it $12 today? And again, we're using the, the small figures off of what you said. And now it's things like this. You can have you know, a $300 office visit, as you said. And the person that that hurts is really not the Medicare patient. Because frankly, you can, if you're a participating doctor in Medicare, you can charge whatever you want. But what happens is Medicare is agreed to only pay you a certain amount. Now you gotta go through all your hoops to get it and, and that's the that's problem. Uh, but if the uninsured patient comes in and here's something that you, you know, your viewers may not, not realize and it's super important. If an uninsured patient comes in to see a doctor who participates in Medicare, right? Now say as a Medicare participator that I would have you know at one time, cause I don't anymore charge Medicare $160 for a visit. Let's just say, let's just throw that out there. Well Medicare would have paid me probably 80, okay? So say an uninsured patient comes into my office and I think, OK, well, what I'm going to do is this patient is uninsured. Let me charge the patient, you know, what Medicare would pay me, not what I would charge Medicare. Right. And what happens is Medicare's made that basically illegal or a kind of a form of Medicare fraud. So Medicare expects you to charge the patient one hundred and sixty and then go after the patient four hundred and sixty dollars. Well, that was also something that was repulsive to me. And I didn't I didn't participate in that.
0: And and in reality, thank you for sharing that. And some mm-hmm. of our viewers might not know that we've talked about some situations like that before. Um, mm-hmm. My son was recently hospitalized just to outpatient surgery with a broken leg. And um, we experienced the same thing. Obviously, we, mm-hmm. we, We have a health sharing ministry, so we are cash payers and then we get reimbursed through the health sharing ministry Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the hospital really wanted nothing to do with giving us a really good discount. Like they do the insurance companies and they Mm -hmm. cited this bill that it's illegal in Washington state and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a rip off and and patients, right. And that's why we have doctors on our show like you, because Mm -hmm. we want to educate and empower consumers that they should be in charge along with their doctor. Um, Mm -hmm. Of their own health, and it includes the pricing, and they need to they need to to to, to push back on this. So right. keep keep well, going. I think
1: price transparency, of course, you know, I know you've spoken about this on your program before. I mean, price price transparency is a huge issue, but it's interesting how something so commonsensical, if sort of you just common sense thing, you should know what you're going to pay at the time of the service uh that's into a common sense. But it's interesting how many people fight that, right? Have you I mean, everyone in Washington fights it. All of the major hospital systems fight it. (sighs) Everyone fights it. They like this system that keeps patients in the dark. And that that's where things like surprise billing comes from as well. Um so and actually to get to the point about how Medicare forces you to charge the uninsured uh what they what you bill Medicare, I think that's the um the sort of reason why occasionally you'll hear of a patient getting a $250,000 hospital bill. I mean, I don't even think the hospitals want that bad press, right? So they get this enormous hospital bill because that's really a Medicare sort of ordered you know, thing. You have to do it in order to comply with Medicare. Now, oftentimes the hospitals sometimes do reduce the price because you know they have to. I mean, nobody, they, well, I know that they put liens on people's homes. We've all heard of that kind of thing as well. So uh, it is a big problem. And this is part of why these movements, direct primary care in my world, the fair cash pricing and the free market movement that you see in some of these surgery centers. I mean, it could revolutionize things. Uh, And I do think that they they were listening in Washington. I just hope they didn't change very much. But at least they were listening to these principles. I'm really hoping that that continues.
0: Well, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm a big believer mm-hmm. in the free market. I don't think no matter what government tries to do, they can't stop the free market forever. People are going right. to get what they need at the price they want to pay. Um, somehow, some way, they will. So, um, tell us a little bit more about your about your fair market pricing. If you don't if you don't mind explaining how yeah. how affordable can it be to see us to, to see a specialist like yourself. For so,
1: so when I um, opted out of Medicare, as I said, I just didn't want the bureaucracy and the regulation and the fear that someone was going to show up. You know, they can come into your doctor's office, pull some charts, and then they can they can accuse your doctor of doing all sorts of things. And so I didn't want to live, you know, under that any longer. So as I opted out of Medicare, what I did was I put together my I have a different goal than some of these other things that you've heard of in the past. I have, my goal is to incentivize chronically ill patients to get care in the clinic. Like I don't want my patients who are flaring up to go to the ER. That's a really bad place for patients who have chronic illness to get their care. I want them to be able to get into my office. So if I had an office, uh, you know, an office price of $200 an office visit, well, people wouldn't be able to come in for that. So what I did was I based it on 12 month intervals. You know, a um, rheumatologist is kind of a lot like a primary doctor in a way. We see our patients pretty frequently right. because we're managing chronic illness. So I did it based on 12 month interval. And so the first, well, this is going to be my initial pricing. So my initial price was $90 for the first, uh, well, $85 for the fifth. So if you see me one time in a year, it's ninety dollars. If you see me a second time, it's eighty-five, and then a third time it's eighty, and then I would go down to seventy-five. And if you needed to see me a fifth time, in that 12 month period, I'd see you for 75. Now, here's the thing. If I'm seeing the patient frequently, they can even be kind of complicated, frankly, but the fact that they've been in on a regular basis and we're, you know, checking the labs and doing all that, that's actually easier for me. If somebody stays away a year and a half and then they come in with all their problems, that's a very difficult visit. So if you stay away longer than a year, things start to go up. So it really incentivizes people to get the care they need. It makes sense because the prices stay stable to get a yearly and maybe twice a year it's very reasonable people find it reasonable now um after the uh, in the third year i did make a price increase i went up by 5 dollars an office visit so now wow. it's 9590 so and and here's the thing so yes it's probably less than i would get from medicare okay but my requirements of my time and my paperwork and all that are so much less but to me, I think that's a wash, you know. And so as far as financially goes, so the first year that I did that, yes, you might expect some people dropped off, but I'm pretty much rocking along. I see a lot of uninsured patients under that arrangement as well. Um, I do have a, a, a new patient price at about $235, uh, which I'm thinking about bringing down because I really don't want a hurdle for my new patients to get in. So I've been kind of kicking around what I might do starting, say, January one. Uh, as far as new patient pricing goes, but uh, I it a model that works and it incentivizes the patients to get in. I've kept the prices fair. And so people are are coming.
0: I, I love that. Uh, and thank you for, for sharing that. And <laughs> even 235 for a new patient is very, very affordable. I mean, think about what other things that we pay for that are 230 bucks. I mean, most people's cell phone bills are hundred bucks a month, right? That's a so, good point. right. And what I like about the free market and, you know, we've interviewed doctors from all over the nation now mm-hmm. that are specialists and that are um, in direct primary care. Everybody's fee service is different. And I love mm-hmm. that. And you right. thought of it, your, your idea is great and they're all different. That's how the free market works. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, another thing I just wanted to, to mention is that I don't think people realize how affordable healthcare really can be, especially for routine stuff, like even a specialist visit like yourself. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I'm, pr- I'm pretty comfortable saying this, mm-hmm. that even most insured patients, most commercially insured patients, if they were commercially insured and they were seeing you, chances are they, were, they are going to pay more. Through their insurance than they are if they just paid paid you cash because the deductibles are so high now and right. usually a lot of things aren't covered so people are routinely paying 50 to 100 dollars for a copay to see a doctor so i see that
1: all the time right all the and time
0: it's it's just another reminder how you know our the whole system is a mess mm-hmm. and you said it earlier Medicare created it all because all of the insurance companies really have followed Medicare with the allowables and the codes and all that kind of stuff. Um, And really honestly, in my opinion anymore, Mm -hmm. and I write about this in my book, I don't think there's anything such as private healthcare anymore. If it's insurance, if it's traditional health insurance, it's all government insurance because it's so highly regulated. They're told what to pay at what price. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, um, I, I kind of think that that's kind of where my well, opinion is on that. Well,
1: one of one of the things that um, that I've you know kind of thought about and uh, uh, is the fact that patients have to rethink insurance. I mean, they really do. The patient has to rethink insurance. Now, again, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on the law, but is that I believe Obamacare kind of made it where you couldn't do have like a large HSA or uh, health financing account. And then pair it with, say, a catastrophic. These plans that have to cover every aspect of everything—that sounds really good. But when you're paying again a thousand dollars in a premium a month, you have a ten thousand dollar deductible, and you—and then you come into my office and you still have a sixty dollar copay. No, you're pretty much financing your own health care. Just think if you could take that money and then say, okay, instead of this huge, I'm going to pay a lesser premium because I'm only gonna get catastrophic. The rest of that money, I'm gonna start financing a health financing account, which goes in tax-free, comes out tax-free. It's like the only little bucket of money that you'll probably never pay taxes on. And then you could come to Ellen McKnight and pay uh, her most expensive follow-up office visit is $95. I mean, to right. me, that makes a lot more sense. But people are, um, if you've ever talked with Kevin Way Casey of healthcare, uh, healthcare economics, uh, he's a he. He calls it an almost like an addiction. People are not yep. willing to go without health insurance, and I'm not advocating going without health insurance because of the catastrophic. You know, no one wants anybody to go without catastrophic. However, if you if it pays your everyday small expenses, it just goes through the roof, and people need to get away from the everyday things like like again primary care, some specialists, at least the doctor's office visits should be a cash arrangement where you can bring the price down. And then if you paired it with uh, like a direct primary care where they can get the labs at wholesale, some of the medications at wholesale, it makes an enormous difference. And that's why it's kind of, I wouldn't say secretive, but no one wants the word to get out because when people start realizing, wait a minute, I'm paying, before my insurance pays anything, I pay $22,000. That would be thousand dollars a month premium and a ten thousand dollar deductible that's not even that unheard of these days it's a real fact that that happened
0: it, it, it's a it's a real fact and in fact if you if you read my book we talk about my wife and my um family and when obamacare came in we um you know our our, our premiums just shot through the roof and mm-hmm. we just we weren't using insurance i mean to me Insurance was made for the catastrophic things like you say. Now, I will say that I think the government and the media wants to portray healthcare as being so expensive and they want to fear mongering over over a catastrophic. And Mm -hmm. so we all got to have this magic insurance. Well, um, you know, if you look at it like auto insurance and I'm sure you've heard this comparison before, (laughs) but, um, you know, uh, you know, if you have collision on your car, it doesn't pay for your Mm -hmm. tires. You know, it doesn't pay for your brakes. It doesn't pay for your gas. Right. Um, it's just for the catastrophic. If you wreck your car and really the most expensive part is going to be if you injure somebody, that's the most expensive part of it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so why should health insurance be any different? And we be. save, we went to a health sharing ministry and we save $18,000 a year. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. And guess what? We get to decide what doctor we go to. Right. And that is so liberating. We get to decide what kind of price we want to pay. We get to talk to the doctor and say, hey, do you give cash discounts? Right. If if you are in an insurance network, the insurance company tells you where to go and you mm-hmm. have to, you don't have to, but here's the thing, you don't have to listen to them. Right. Um,
1: you well, know, one doctors, thing I'd like to mention about the insurance ahead, networks, because I believe that the insurance companies, it's kind of like, it is uh, ingenious, but diabolical, as I like to say it, which is this scheme oh, of yes. networks and oh deductible streams. You know, the deductible, I mentioned this, I was speaking to some med students not too long ago and I mentioned this, you know, it used to be you had one deductible, anything you spent went to a deductible and then they split it into like in network and out of network. And that's when they got complete control. Because uh, if you talk to Keith Smith, the surgery center of Oklahoma, that's when they really had a hard time surviving for the first year or two after that happened. Because You know, people were used to meeting one deductible stream. You know, that's the thing. We've all gotten used to trying to, we're like good little puppies, and we're going to try to get our our little, you know, biscuit snack once we reach our deductible, right? Then they finally give us a little something, and we're supposed to be happy and wag our tail and just be thrilled. But when they broke it down into two, seriously, you know it's true. When they broke it down into two deductibles, then people were like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to start working on the out-of-network deductible. I'm having a hard enough time getting to the inner. So then that's when people only went to in network doctors. And now what do we have? We have a situation where they're narrowing the networks lower and lower and it's coming in. So you have limited choice because you have a limited network. And then if you do go out of network, uh, they used to pay what, like 70% of your bill. And now it's probably 30 if it's even that. And that's where all this surprise billing is coming from. And so my, stra- I mean, I have a hashtag, hashtag, uh, let's see, um, no networks, no surprise billing. That's true. If there were no networks, why do the insurance companies, are they allowed to have, net- you're paying them enormous sums of money. You should be able to go and see whom you want, when you want in my humble
0: opinion. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you why. We, we had a, a gal that um, her, her job is based on. She does billing, um, insurance billing for providers and doctors and clinics all over the nation.
1: Right. And she
0: talked about the Adam Network thing. And there's something at a local hospital pretty close to us mm-hmm. that basically these hospitals are going to these networks or these hospitals are going to these areas and they become the preferred provider. And, mm-hmm. and and I mean they're just destroying independent clinics and
1: right.
0: and the out of network fee, I mean we're talking the out of network deductible is like fifty thousand dollars.
1: I mean it's so basic. It, it is. I mean like, that it's, it's how any, they can get away with that. It's, as a right. Team. In any other
0: industry, it'd be illegal. I mean it's like right. it's like a mo- it's like mob tactics and and it's right. legal. I mean and, and you
1: realize, oh, I was just going to mention that for doctors. So if if I am in um. A network of say, say I've got this little, like it's, you know, maybe we meet and play cards on the weekend. And then we come up with, we've we've devised this scheme where, okay, I'm going to only send everything to you and you're going to only send. Then we're going to combine our money and we're going to divvy it out based on all that would be illegal. But the hospital system. It's collusion. Exactly. And it's collusion and and it is illegal. It's kickback stuff too. So, you know, it's dark violations too. When you have a hospital system that, will only allow referral within their hospital system you know that's that's i mean isn't that some sort of Stark? because i can't do that well i can now guess what that's the other beautiful thing about opting out of medicare in case any doctor is out there listening lots and lots of things go away like for instance i'll just go through a few of them Please. you know the ehr and its mandates stark anti-kickback rack um this thing about i can charge my Patient who comes in who's uninsured whatever they want and I don't have to worry that Medicare is going to come at me and say you didn't charge them enough and therefore we're coming at you all those ICD nine ICD ten codes which are like seventy something thousand of them you know once a lot of the things that you live under now are because you this is to doctors now because you participate in Medicare if you get out of Medicare and you offer your patients a fair cash price if you have if you give them what they want and need which is timely access to you and a high quality product, which would be your care, then uh, they're going to come to you because I, I feel like I've proven it. Um, I've kept my prices fair. I've kept a lot of the patients. Now some left, but you know what? Even when I was taking everything, occasionally somebody would be like, "I'm moving on," and this is what happened. So I don't live in fear of that. I um, you know I just do I just do what I want. But I think doctors don't understand that. They think a lot of the laws they live under are just blanket laws. But no, it's because of Medicare participation that Stark exists. The second you get, now I don't do anything that now that Stark doesn't apply to me, it's not like I'm out doing something about that. But if I wanted to, I could. Stark doesn't apply to me because I'm not a Medicare provider.
0: Right. Stark anti-kickback is with Medicaid and Medicare providers. So that is right. totally true. And
1: exactly. I think the way
0: Dr. McKnight, the way the hospitals get away with it is there's a little clause in there that is if it's on their campus, they
1: mm-hmm. can refer
0: to it. So it'd be radiology or Be some other specialty they can refer to that. But if the doctor's
1: offices had MRIs and stuff, and they used to give them total grief about that. (laughs) You know, I mean, they're like, well, wait, why, you know, why is that sort of separation done? I don't know. And, And the reason that we, the other thing they do is they'll pay some hospital systems more than they pay an autonomous independent doctor. And so why is is that? Why is that a thing? And that's another reason they don't want transparency, because they don't want people to see that. Even insurance companies will pay some practices. They work out a better deal than another practice. They do not want any of that stuff revealed because it's going to be a real eye opener. Well,
0: and it just tells you, you know, you're talking about the big hospital systems getting big benefits. It's just like, you know what? Follow the money. I guarantee you there's a lobbying group that lobbies for them and that's Mm -hmm. how they get the big money. And, you know, so it's not we really shouldn't be that surprised. And really, the only way to get rid of it is to make sure that doctors are empowered and independent again and they get to decide what's best for their patients because it's really easy for the federal government to control Five hospital systems, it's pretty Mm -hmm. hard for them to control 50,000 doctors, you know what I'm saying? Well,
1: yeah. And one of the things that, you know, because I'm a huge advocate of direct primary care movement, I've spoken at several of their meetings. And one of the things is, if enough doctors opt out and make it, meaning get out of the whole system and make it, that is very threatening to the system. So the system has two choices, right? The system can basically go to the doc. This is what I would hope they would do is to go to the doctors that are staying in and say, how can we make it where you don't want to leave us, uh, i.e. less regulation, less paperwork, less I call bullying, Medicare is bullies physicians, less bullying would be a good answer, right? Um, You know, or they can maybe, and what they've done though, is they've gone to the direct primary care doctors, you probably know this, and said, oh, well, we want you to come back in the system and we'll still let you, um, you know, do your your kind of monthly fee and all that. But any doctor who's been out of the system isn't uh, coming back. They're no, not coming back. No, they can no. do that song and dance all day long. Yep. So they better—they need to stick with the doctors who are in there and try to make it um, a system that those doctors want to stay in. And right now, it isn't.
0: No. And when I, when I interview a lot of the direct primary care doctors, I, I can't remember the one I interviewed, but he said this. He said that the only way to fix the system was to get out of it. I don't think it's fixable, honestly, Helen. Um, I know, agree and, with you. So, so speaking with that, you opt out of Medicare
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but you still say that Medicare is necessary. Is that correct?
1: Well, what I would like to see Medicare, this is how I would like to see it. if if I, if I okay. had a magic wand, what I would do is I would have Medicare, and I don't know what this would be, and maybe it's the people who are coming on, you know now. So we keep the system for those folks who are on it, people who come on now. I'd like to see Medicare do health financing accounts through Medicare, where, you did, and you can go seek out a, uh, a direct care doctor. You can seek out a fair cash pricing doctor like myself, and really only use Medicare for the catastrophic type. You know, Medicare can be your catastrophic, but you really manage the money. And actually, you know, you know better than anybody that you, you know if you can offer some of these medications and labs and all that wholesale. Then it would save the system a tremendous amount of money, and it would give pay. See, you know what these uh, replacement systems are doing, uh, Medicare things are doing now. Okay, because I still feed some Medicare patients, right? So what they do is they offer these the patient gym membership, you know, all sorts of, you know, whatever, you know, talk to a dietitian, this kind of stuff. But when it comes to the real stuff that needs to be covered, they don't cover it. So I had a patient, yeah, I said, okay, well, wait, no, skip the gym membership and cover the Humera, you know, or something like that. I mean, but that's what's happening because I had a patient in the other day and they said, and here's the other language. This is the language you have to be aware of. What they say is, oh, it's, oh, Dr. McKnight, no, they cover it. They didn't deny it, so to speak. They cover it, but I'm going to pay $4,000 a month. Yeah, it's covered, though. It's covered. I don't think that's coverage. Right, right. So, So do I think Medicare is necessary? I think Medicare is necessary for catastrophic. But here's another thing I'd like to ask. I have two children who are getting ready to enter the workforce. Uh, very soon, hopefully, and kind of be making their own money, which my husband and I are thrilled about. But (laughs) I I would like to ask this question. Why should they go into a system that's been predicted to fail six years? Now, they'll resurrect it in some form. But right now, what happens, you will pay your entire working life into Medicare. And now, and I think this was an Obamacare thing, too, where now, when you get onto Medicare, you pay a Medicare premium. It comes out of your Social Security. So I know some patients who pay anywhere from $150 a month to sometimes $350 or $400. Now that's real premium. I mean, that's like a regular premium. Why are you forced to go into Medicare? Why couldn't I either keep my insurance, private insurance and Medicare supplement me to be able to keep my private insurance would be one option. But also for my kids, why are they going? I'd like them to take that money that they'd be paying into the Medicare system and financing a health financing account for themselves. Tax free money that will be there. And by the time, says let's say we decided to start it at this generation. We're going to start it at this generation. They're coming in and we're going to do something like this. Well, by the time that those, you know, children, not, they're not, they're young adults. By the time those young adults became 65 age or whatever. There would be a lot of money there that they could do with, and then Medicare would be a true catastrophic only. The system might actually survive with something like that. I mean, these are the kind of things that in a dream world I'd like to see, right. but I don't know. It gives, oh, I, it gives I, the power I, to someone else, yeah. and they're never giving that power up.
0: Right, right. Is. That's one of the things. It, it's, a, it's a way for them to control us and a way for them to control right. boats. That's for sure. Correct. Well. I liked it. I love your um, analogy of mm-hmm. you know your kids maybe opting out and putting into their own um, account. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've done it, but if mm-hmm. you look at how much the average person pays into Medicare over a lifetime, over like forty years of working, when they mm-hmm. could start drawing Medicare, it amounts to millions of dollars with compounded interest. I agree. Most people, and and then they still
1: require you to pay now. Exactly. I mean, now you're still paying. You're not off the hook for that now. Why did you have to pay your whole life only to continue to pay a premium once you got onto Medicare? It's an outrage, really. But you know, patients. It's interesting because patients don't really. uh, They just kind of go, "Hmm, that's my coverage. Hmm, that's accepted. Hmm," and I keep telling them, "No, you need to." talk to your politicians and get involved because they're gonna come after you for more of your stuff. Out of your social security now is coming a Medicare premium. That is wrong. It was never devised that way. And I think we need to rethink something for this new generation, or it's just gonna implode and we all know that's the future. For
0: sure. I, mm-hmm. I saw I saw a report yesterday. I, I wasn't able to verify it, but the average person on Medicare makes mm-hmm. equivalent of thirteen dollars and eighty-five cents an hour. So what is that? Twenty-seven, twenty-eight thousand dollars a year on mm-hmm. average. That's how much money they make. And they still have to pay that premium you're talking about and they still have to pay deductibles. Essentially right. most most of them can't afford it. So, essentially, mm-hmm. most of them are essentially uninsured. Think about that.
1: It's, and, it's you know, you could, argue, on every level. Yeah,
0: yeah, you could argue that it's part of the government's plan because the system right. is broke. They don't want them to seek health care. I would, I would believe that's probably true. I might sound like a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory, but I think that's true. I honestly think, Dr. McKnight, I think mm-hmm. Medicare and Social Security are two of the biggest Ponzi schemes ever devised in the history of man. They are big Ponzi like schemes. <laughs> yeah, they are big Ponzi schemes, and they've become legal. I mean, it's legal. That's just unbelievable. In any other system, it would be illegal. So and that's why I, I want to get the word out. I mean, I'm not, you know, one of my solutions in my book is to actually get rid of Medicare. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in Medicare because I don't think the federal government will ever fix it. And I think it's what's what's really ruined the system. And, mm-hmm. and here, just hear me out. People yeah. are not going to go without health care if they don't have Medicare. Remember, Medicare is only 60, 70 years old. Before that, mm-hmm. doctors were taking care of patients. Still, I gave the story of of the doctor that delivered me. That was that mm-hmm. was in the in the sixties before Medicare. People are mm-hmm. still gonna get taken care of, probably better at a much less price for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. I, I would like lo- the thing is um, it's so entrenched in our system that I don't I don't see accepting of that. However, I could see an argument for um, a new system. You know, they tried this again. They talked about it anyway at one point with Social Security that maybe people could pay into, you know, 401ks and whatever and kind of do that instead of Social Security. And it gets, it gets um, you, know, they, they, you know, it gets uh, fear-mongered. You know, it's just fear-mongered. And, and then, you know, they're coming at your Social Security and everything. But really, for again, for my children, they're they are, well, actually getting ready to turn 23 and 24, they they are really going to be at a disadvantage. and i sure. I think we should be thinking about new things. Maybe we could convince others, uh, but that's a I, I, I laud your efforts here to try to do that because that's not an easy um, kind of uh, or and you know, it's just going to take some some time to convince people because they like they don't like the system. They're always complaining about it. I was about to say they like the system, but they don't like the system. They're always complaining about it. But they are, um, I, I'm not going to use the word addicted, although that's the word Dr. Way Casey uses, that they're addicted, I've heard to, that. Insurance and they're addicted to their insurance. coverage, and they can't think of anything else. They cannot think of a, even the doctors I talk to, when I start talking about direct primary care, we, we have one direct primary care doctor in our community. Um, you would think everybody would be jumping on that bandwagon, but they just, too afraid and that's a shame yeah Yeah. i
0: i i get it It, it, it's it's around our entire profession i know my wife and i we we haven't built any insurance since 2002 in our pharmacy Mm -hmm. because we just thought it was a racket and we thought we could give patients better service at a better price if we were just individually um working with them and i'll tell Mm -hmm. you our colleagues um they thought we were crazy they thought we were going to go under um Mm -hmm. many of them in the meantime have went under with huge debt, trying to cash flow the insurance system. Um, well, because an
1: I mean, you're an independent pharmacist, yep. a pharmacy, correct? And correct. then, uh, but I've seen the pressures on independent pharmacies right now are enormous. Oh yeah, and that's because of the the big. It gets back to what we were talking about before about when all this this money is being churned around, it becomes corporate. So the huge corporate pharmacies are such a problem, and they are causing. Medi- Here's what I'm doing now, now I'm in my community, as I mentioned, I don't have a direct primary care doctor. We do have point of care dispensing, but I'm not doing that right now. But the thing is, I always tell patients, look, I'm prescribing celecoxib for you, for instance, okay? I'm um, On GoodRx, look this up and I always pull it up. It's about $25 or something put per, per month. I said, just know that number, be armed with that number. And then when you go into your pharmacy, and I right. just had this exact thing happen, into one of the big corporate pharmacies, I won't mention which one, but we all know the the top two or three. I went into one of those and they said, that'll be $125. And the patient said, wait a minute, I just looked at this up and it's, I can get this for $25. And right there they, they cha- but if you're not armed with that information, uh, right? you're not armed, you're going in there, you are like a sitting duck. And so um, I do, I try to take the time to educate my patients about that. Cause here's one thing I will say, my message lately has been, that doctors um, need to incorporate two things, defending the profession, because I believe medicine is under siege and protecting the financial health of our patients. In addition to the other things we've always protected like their physical and mental health, you know, into our new 21st century medical ethics, because our patients are, they are being, destroyed financially and the profession of medicine is being decimated by all of these things and if we don't really adopt that and just say okay that's someone else's problem I'm just going to see my patients I'm going to spend the five minutes they allot me to see my patients and I'm just going to keep my head down and go play on my EHR well as doctors we're failing our patients and I think we really need to do that defend the profession and protect your patient's financial health. So I have to take the time and I do it. Here's what you can get this for. Understand, and this isn't me talking to the patient now, here's what you can get this medicine for. Understand that your insurance, you if you use it may cost you more money. Right. And patients are finally starting to get it. Yep. You know, I had a, a, just a quick example of, uh, I think it was Dr. Wade Casey was t- telling me that, um, he had a patient, he wanted to get an ultrasound of the uh, abdomen. He said, "Okay, I've got this worked out for you. It's $125 cash." The patient says, "But I've got insurance and, right. you know, it and was- so, but I want to and he said, "But you may go in there with your insurance, it may cost you $1,000." And the response was, "But it's going to go towards my deductible." You know, this is
0: I, I the know. mindset we need to change. I know. We, I, I, change. We, we hear you. You are preaching to the choir. We hear yeah. it all the time. And yeah. I'm so glad you're out there advocating for your patients and financially. You know, yeah. the great Dr. Keith Smith, you know, he said one yeah. time, he said that, you know, um, you could maybe argue that doctors that don't um, advocate financially for their patients are violating the Hippocratic Oath. Because no, do do you as a doctor have financial responsibility to the patient?
1: You know, I, well, that's what I'm saying. We have, again, maybe they don't think so, but that's why I want our new medical ethic to to embrace that and run with it. We need to be protecting our patients' financial health as well as their physical health and as well as their emotional health. All of that needs to be protected by the doctor. And by the way, that's going to take a little more than five minutes. So yeah, you need right, to get right. off the junky, clunky EHR, just, you know, get rid of it. That's another hashtag, hashtag ditch the EHR. Because seriously, it is a detriment to medicine and it has so um, taken our profession and just made it you know, what it is today, which is when I compare it to my father and father-in-law's time of practicing medicine. And even my early days, I mean, I've been practicing since the early 90s. So much has changed since then. It is mind-boggling, truly. It
0: is, it is, even the the last 10 years. So we're about ready to wrap it up. I got a question for you. Sure. What fires you up about what you do?
1: Uh, you, uh, well, I have a couple of things. Number one, uh, the field of rheumatology fires me up because it is uh, when I first came into rheumatology in the early 90s, there wasn't, you know, people, in fact, my colleagues said what my, you know, contemporaries at the time, why are you going into rheumatology? You really can't do anything for those patients. Well, in the time that I've been a rheumatologist, we now have phenomenal treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. For uh, you know, lupus, we have treatments for osteoporosis. These were all things that made patients their quality of life just went down, and they died early too because of these devastating diseases. But the other thing that fires me up is uh, this whole concept of being an activated physician and trying to defend the profession of medicine, because I actually believe that when when what is good for physicians is good for patients. The two they're kind of intertwined. You know, that's a bond. It's it's unbreakable, it's, you know, and all that. And so if we're focusing on the profession, i.e., you know, more time with our patients and all the things we've kind of talked about today, then it, so I'm advocating for that. It's sort of like this is what I tell my doctor colleagues all the time. You have the knowledge, skill and experience. You have everything that it takes to reclaim medicine. And that's what we need to do as a profession. Put it back into our hands and work with pharmacies too. You know, That's the other thing, I remember the day my father working with the pharmacists and getting the patients everything that they needed in particularly independent pharmacies that are not necessarily corporatized. I'd like to see a reversal of all that. And, and I'm just one person, but I try to get, that's why I'm so thankful to have come on your show and thank you for having me uh, because I think it is, it's a message I want patients and physicians to hear.
0: Wow. That was a lot in an hour, Dr. Ng Knight. I am thank so honored and privileged to have you on. Thank, thank you, you so much for I educating. Yeah, thank you for thank educating you. and empowering our consumers. And um, we will wrap our show up with that. Thank you so much, Dr. Knight. You've been listening and watching Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday at 1 to 2 p.m. Thank you so much.